0: Well, as a preacher, I am often reminded um, of just how unworthy I am of the words that I preach, and it's rarely been more so than the case for this morning. Um, We're right in the middle of these 10 verses at the start of Ephesians 2, which is such a foundational set of verses with regards to our salvation. It reminds us... Of many truths of us as people, that we were depraved in every way, that God Himself interceded. And it's a reminder also that we once walked or lived in a certain way, but we were saved in order to walk in a way that God has called us to walk. But I think about an oil painting. I mean, if you think about paintings, if you're into art, you know, Monet is one of the biggest names when it comes to oil paintings. And you think about that canvas and and all the the smallest details that went into that picture. And that's how I feel when I look at the Word of God, just the absolute detail and beauty that's there. And then when I'm preaching it to you, I feel like I'm taking a giant Crayola crayon and just kind of scribbling it over a blank canvas. Um, But, you know, God, in his divine grace and mercy upon us, he uses broken vessels like myself to be able to portray these truths. And certainly we have some magnificent truths ahead of us in these verses that we'll look at this morning. But as I pondered this passage and that last song that we just sang is so fitting because that last song spoke of God's glory. The, the, the glory of God that, that would fill up the tabernacle and, and the temple that, that would cause and, and, and remind us to fall down on our knees and to worship him. That's what the Israelites did whenever they went to the place that God was at. Well, as I pondered that passage, I was drawn to a familiar statement from the Old Testament. There's very few statements that are more important than this one. You see, when you think back to the first five books, those are the books of Moses. They were written by Moses because Moses was one of the central characters chosen by God to go back into Egypt and deliver the Israelites from the house of slavery, from their enslavement to the Egyptians. Well, Moses, when he brought them out, he brought them to Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb and received the Ten Commandments. And you may remember that shortly after those Ten Commandments, the Israelites disobeyed. Not 40 days after they had received the Ten Commandments, they already broke the first two laws by creating golden calves to worship. Moses came down, he smashed the tablets on the ground, and he immediately took action. Now, at that point, the covenant was broken between Israel and between God, because the idea was that they'd be faithful to God, that they would worship God, and they couldn't even keep that promise beyond 40 days. But Moses interceded for them. He prayed to God. He prayed to God that he would relent from his anger, that he would relent from his judgment upon the Israelites, and God agreed to do that. And then shortly thereafter, Moses had another prayer request for God. He wanted God to show him his glory. He wanted to be able to witness the glory of God directly face to face. And that's when we get to Exodus 34. You don't have to turn there, but let me read for you Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. This ends up being such an important set of verses for Israelites, they would go back to it again and again. Exodus 34, verse 6 reads, Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. So marvelous statement of the attributes of God. It's a marvelous statement that proclaims the compassion, the grace, the loving kindness of our Lord. And if you read through the Old Testament, you will see those statements repeated over and over and over and over again. Especially you go through the Psalms that will be brought up again to remind the worshiper of God and his attributes, his characteristics that set him apart. In fact, you may remember the story of Jonah. Jonah is a very short book, only four chapters. Jonah was called by God to go to the city of Nineveh and to preach to them. And Jonah tried to fight that. That's why he ended up getting swallowed up by the whale and then spit out on ground. But, you know, when he finally preached to them and at the end of preaching, the Lord blessed it because the Ninevites repented. And really, Jonah's preaching consisted of 40 days and you will fall. It's a nice message, right? But they repented. The Ninevites repented, and then starting in Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, just listen to this. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord. Was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, in other words, in order to delay this judgment, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. It's an amazing statement from Jonah. Because as we often go back to the Old Testament, we think of God as this God of wrath and anger. Jonah, the prophet, did not want to preach to the Ninevites because he knew God to be the exact opposite. To be compassionate and gracious and his loving kindness was going to lead to their deliverance. Now, this morning's text, and, and the reason why I look at those texts, because as we think about the attributes of God, the attributes of God are going to come into play in these next set of verses we're looking at, looking at this morning from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. It's full of the good attributes of God. And I can't but help but think that Paul was thinking back to these statements made in the Old Testament when he made those statements in Ephesians. Let's go ahead and read the entire section, um, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, and then we'll focus on our section for this morning, which is 4 through 7. Starting in verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved." And raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Now, as a reminder, my purpose in going through these, this series, and we're breaking this out into three parts, my purpose is to help us understand God's undeserved goodness to us in providing salvation so that you'll be moved to joyfully serve him. We want to understand God's undeserved goodness in providing salvation to us so that you'll be moved to joyfully serve him. And as I read that purpose, I want to remind you that the purpose of the book of Ephesians is for us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which we have been called. That is the central commandment of Ephesians found at the beginning of chapter 4. And so these truths in the first three chapters, this rich theology is meant to Inflame our hearts to love God and to desire to serve him for his glory and honor. Now last week, as you can see in your bulletin, the outline, we've got four main points. Last week I covered the first point, which was the absolute need for the gospel. And just to recap that, starting in verse one, "And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the Spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too, all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Those first three verses, we can look at them and recognize right away that there is nothing good being described about us before salvation. There is nothing good about any of mankind prior to knowing Jesus Christ. We can look about in this world and we can look and point to people who may have devoted their lives to charitable causes. We may have people at work who we consider good people but are not Christians. We have people that may show kindness towards others and may even donate a lot of their time to charities and those kinds of things. But the reality is that the first three verses of this chapter is that no one is good before God. Everyone is dead in their trespasses and sins. And so when we looked at those three verses, remember the past tense of all these verbs that we saw. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You formerly walked. And then verse 3, among them, we too all formerly lived. It's all past tense. The implication is that there is a change in our lives now. There's a change in pronouns. In verse 1, it's you. In verse 2, it's you. And then in verse 3, it's we. Paul here was talking about you as Gentiles and then speaks about himself as Jewish believers. But in the end, he relates them all together saying we all had the same issue. And then the behavior, all the ways that we were depraved, we walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, which of course is Satan. We lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were characterized as sons of disobedience and children of wrath. And that wrath is meant to describe the punishment of God upon those who rebel against him. Upon those, and the judgment that is much deserved for the sins that we have committed. That was the first point of this overall outline the absolute need for the gospel. But that leads us to our message this morning and our focus, which is upon the second point, which is the second proof of God's undeserved goodness to us through the gospel, which is the divine intercession of the gospel. The divine intercession of the gospel. And as you look at your bulletin you'll notice that I've labeled out three subpoints below that point number 2. The first being the cause. So point 2A is the cause. The cause. As we look at verse 4, it reads, "But God." It's the first two words of verse 4. And it has been called by many the two most beautiful words in all of the Bible. It is the two most beautiful words because if you look at verses 1, 2, and 3 in how it describes us, how we were lost, how we were dead in our trespasses and sins, how we followed after Satan, how we followed after the world, how we did whatever our minds and our flesh desired, there was nothing that was going to reverse that. There was no way we would turn back towards God. There was no way that we would repent of that and suddenly become followers of God. The Old Testament testifies of this through Israel, that though they were blessed in a multitude of different ways, they would continue to turn away from God. And that is true for us as well. And so when we see these two words, but God, what we see here is divine intervention. It is the greatest turnaround in any of our lives for those of us who are proclaimed Jesus Christ. This was the greatest turnaround in your life, that God intervened, and changed your heart. That is the but God of verse 4. In fact, let me read this statement from one of the commentators. He writes this, The grim, plodding, hopeless, long-syllabled announcement of human lostness, that we are dead in trespasses and sin, children of wrath by nature. This is shattered by a lightning bolt from heaven, Not in judgment, but with intervening mercy and love beyond all reckoning. And he goes on to say, Paul had kept his hearers waiting for the main subject, which is God, and the main verbs with this long recital from verses 1 to 3 regarding our depravity. But here, the subject of God finally bursts forth on the scene. God is the reason why we are saved. God is the reason why you proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ. God is the reason why you have a hope in the future. And it was God and only God. But as we read verse 4, the the cause behind this was not only God, but we read the descriptions of God. In verse 4, it says, But God being rich in mercy. Now, interestingly enough, this word mercy. This is the only time it shows up in all of Ephesians. There's many other attributes that you see over and over again. You'll see God's love um, repeated. You'll see God's grace certainly repeated. But this is the only time here that mercy shows up. But its placement here speaks volumes because it comes right after those two words, but God. Now that leads us to the question, what is mercy? What do we mean by mercy? Mercy. When I first became a believer, I was given a very simplistic explanation that mercy is essentially God withholding what you deserve, and grace is God giving you what you don't deserve. So, mercy, in other words, you, were, you, you deserve judgment and God withheld that, but grace, you didn't deserve salvation, but God did give you that. Now, that is a very simple explanation, and it really is much deeper and much more multifaceted than that. Now, mercy is often thought of as an emotion. So going back to the Old Testament, if you see mercy, the word mercy and compassion comes from the same word. And, and it really describes our innards. It's, it's kind of like how you feel when someone that you love very much is experiencing pain. You can feel it on the inside. That's the idea of compassion and mercy. And, and really, mercy is the opposite of wrath. So wrath is having anger poured out upon you that you did deserve. Mercy is showing kindness that you didn't deserve. And remember, we learned in those first three verses that we are both children of wrath and sons of disobedience. So mercy is the opposite of what we deserve, which is wrath. Now, let me just give you a little bit of a historical note. And this is going to get slightly technical, but I I trust this will be helpful. We know that the Old Testament was written mostly in what language? Hebrew. It was written in Hebrew. And the New Testament was written in what language? Greek. Greek. Okay, so you got the Old Testament, most, most of which is in Hebrew. There's a little bit of Aramaic. And then the New Testament you have written in Greek. Well, in between the end of the Old Testament and the start of the New Testament, right, you, you have a period of about 430 years, from the last prophet until John the Baptist shows up. And during that time, Israel... They had been thrown into exile, right? I mean, even before that, the end of that period, they'd been thrown into exile. They were put under, um, really, the, uh, the, they were submitted under the powers of Babylon. I mean, really, first it was Assyria that, that exiled Israel, and then Judah was exiled to Babylon. And then from Babylon, it was Persia. And then from Persia, it was Greece. And then from Greece, it was Rome. And by the time we get to the New Testament and the Gospels of our Lord Jesus Christ, Rome had already taken over. Now, during that time, the, the, the language, the natural, the national language, really, of that empire of both Greece as well as Rome would have been Greek, which is why we have the New Testament written in Greek. But also during that period, a lot of Jews were not able to read their Old Testament. Not all of them, but a lot of them had lost um, capability of their, of, of their Hebrew skills to be able to read in Hebrew. So there was a translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint the Septuagint, S-E-P-T-U-A-G-I-N-T. But Septuagint, Um, it was written, it's basically a Greek translation of the Old Testament, a Greek translation of the Old Testament. Now, why am I mentioning all this? Well, because of this reason. Here in Ephesians, we see that God is rich in mercy. The, The Greek word used for mercy is found in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It shows up over 300 times. And it translates back to seven different words. But there's one word in particular that shows up far more than any other. There's one word that shows up about two-thirds of the time. And it's the word that you see in the Old Testament, not for compassion or mercy, but for loving kindness. It is often connected to loving kindness. And, it's, and while this word for mercy, it's, it's often used in conjunction with our salvation, in which you look at all the usages in this idea of loving kindness, it can mean so much more than that. Now, this mercy is described here as rich, and this is not the first time Paul has used the word rich. In Ephesians 1.7, he, he described the, the riches of God's grace. And then in chapter 1, verse 18, he described the riches of God's glory. So the idea of this mercy, it's not sparse or minimal. But when we tie it back to the loving kindness of God, back to the Old Testament, this is one of the most beloved attributes of God for the nation of Israel, for the Jew. And it can mean so many things. I mean, certainly it can mean the mercy and compassion. It can mean grace. Um, I remember when I went through seminary, I kind of coined it as covenantal um, faithfulness. But it it can also mean loyalty. But basically, it's just this goodness of God to, all, to always do what is good. It's the goodness of God poured out to his people, the goodness of God to, to save and rescue his people and to remember his covenants, but also to demonstrate his love even when it is not deserved. So it has a broad range of meaning. And I'm convinced here that this is what Paul was thinking about when he said, Rich in mercy. Let me read for you once again, Exodus 34, 6 and 7. And just listen to this. When the Lord passed by in front of Moses, this is what Moses heard. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. And that word loving-kindness, it's an unusual word. It's not a word that we normally have in our vocabulary. And the reason why the translators came up with that word is because it's hard to find an English word that captures all that is contained within that Hebrew word. And by the way, if you're curious, the Hebrew word is uh, chesed. You can spell it K-E-S-E-D, chesed. It's a very, very important and Uh, important word for the Jewish believer, even for the Jew of the Old Testament. This is something that they would rely upon over and over and over again. The chesed, the loving kindness of God. Jonah, um, once again, his statement, remember he was upset at God for rescuing the Ninevites and he said, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and one who relents concerning calamity. So Jonah and Moses, they are basically stating what ends up getting repeated over and over and over again throughout the Old Testament. That while God is, he's gracious, he is compassionate, but he is also abundant in loving kindness. His loving kindness abounds. So then what is this mercy that we see in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4? This is the compassion upon God, upon this the passion, compassion of God upon us as sinners. Looking at us, realizing that we are absolutely depraved, realizing that we will never turn towards Him, realizing that we are in absolute rebellion, that we were sons of disobedience, we were children of wrath, headed towards certain destruction. And it was completely deserved. It was absolutely deserved. But God, when he shows compassion, the idea of compassion is not that you deserved his compassion, but that out of the goodness of who he is, he decided to show that upon you. He is rich in mercy. He is rich in this loving kindness. And when we go on, he's not only rich in mercy, but verse four goes on to say, because of his great love with which he loved us. Now, he is rich in mercy, but that flows out of the fact that he has great love for us. You know, we throw around the term unconditional love. I love you with unconditional love. Well, you know when that gets really put to the test? When you do something to make them upset. When you do something to help make that person feel betrayed. When you totally turn your back upon that person and say, I don't love you, I hate you, I want no part of you. Will that person still love you? That's the real test of unconditional love. And throughout, the, throughout our human history, what we showed is a complete lack of love for God. We completely disobeyed God. We turned away from Him. We hated Him. We did not seek Him. We established gods of our own making. We tried to establish our own goodness in our own lives and did everything we could to escape the righteousness of God. But God... Because of his great love with which he loved us, sent his son to die. Because of his great love with which he loved us, he expressed his great, his rich mercy upon us. And and what we see here is we see these beautiful attributes of God that he's not only merciful, which is this loving kindness, but he has great love for us. Now, it's often said today that God is a God of love, and that's true. He is a God of love, but the way it's said, belies it, it totally undermines what is truly meant. See, when people say God is love today, what, what are they trying to imply? They're saying, you know what, just, just simply love everyone, don't confront sin, you know, you know be, be accepting of all kinds of different religions, all different kinds of beliefs, and let's just include everyone and just love everyone. Let's, don't worry about how they're living their life, don't worry if it seems like they're rebelling, just love But when you look at Ephesians, there's a reason why Paul waited this long to talk about the love of God. Because unless you understand how unworthy of that love you were to begin with, you can't understand just how deep that love really is. You can't appreciate that that love was truly unconditional. That you did nothing to deserve it. You did nothing to earn it. But what's interesting also is that Paul here says, because of his great love with which he loved us. Now, remember, in verses one to three, he says you, he says you, and then he says we. And he's talking about you as Gentiles, you as Gentiles, we as Jewish believers. But by the end of verse three, you see that Paul is really lumping the Jewish believers with Gentile believers. That look, amongst you, too, we just followed after the lust of our flesh. We were children of wrath as the rest. And so by this point in time, when he says, because of the great love with which he, being God, loved us, he's talking about all believers. It's all inclusive at that point. So we see here God's un- con- unconditional love, that he had great love with which he loved us. And of course, we see that in verses like John three sixteen, right? For God so loved the world that he did what? <clears throat> Yeah, he sent his only begotten son and that he, whoever believes in him, will have eternal life, right? Will not perish, but have eternal life. So we see that God has this great love with which he loved us. But then we go on and we see two other attributes mentioned um, in one in verse five and one in verse seven. Take a look at verse five. It says, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive together with Christ, and it says, By grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved. It's just like what the Jew would mention often over and over again, that the Lord is compassionate and gracious. By grace you have been saved, and grace is a very simple word. It just means unmerited favor. You have received favor from God that you did not deserve. So from the mercy of God, he rescued you from where you were headed. And from the grace of God, he gave you abundantly more than what you deserved. And then we also see his kindness at the, towards the end of verse 7. It says in verse 7, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace. There's again that word grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That kindness, uh, that the word for kindness, once again, when we think of mercy being loving kindness, this is really kind of an outflow of of that kind of loving kindness. This kindness is similar to goodness. It can refer to moral uprightness. Someone motivated to help another person who is in need. It's like benevolence. You you know, we have some examples where in, uh, for instance, Luke chapter 6, verse 35. Luke chapter 6, you don't have to turn there, but Luke chapter 6 Verse 35, Jesus tells us to love your enemies. Why? Because even God is kind to the unrighteous. And that uh, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 3, Peter says, If you have tasted that the Lord is good, but that word for good is kind. If you have tasted that the Lord is kind, In Romans chapter 2, verse 4, and just write these down, you don't have to, not word for word, just write down the reference. Romans chapter 2, verse 4, God's kindness was intended for us to lead us to repentance. God's kindness towards us was intended for us to repent. And so altogether, all four of these attributes that I just mentioned, whether it's mercy, whether it's love, whether it's grace or kindness, they all emphasize the same thing, that what we receive from God was not deserved. There was nothing in us that merited what we received from God with regards to our salvation. Those words implied that God acted independently and not on the basis of anything that you did. But we move from the cause, which was 2A, to the second subpoint, 2B, which is the actions. So the cause, and we really just covered those attributes of God that are mentioned throughout these verses, and then we get to the actions, and there are three actions that we see mentioned. Starting in verse 5, we read this. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. Now, let me just stop right there. That very start of verse 5 says, even when we were dead in our transgressions, that wording is actually identical to verse 1 with two differences. It says we instead of you, and it only says transgressions rather than transgressions and sins. Well, the fact that it just says transgressions is not significant. Transgressions and sins are often used as synonyms for one another. But the other change, the fact that he says we instead of you is more significant, as I mentioned, because Paul is referencing everyone, Jewish believers as well as Gentile believers, that we were dead in our transgressions and our sins. And this is very important because everyone says when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. And this is emphasizing this point. That there was no intermediate state between the time you were dead in your trans- transgressions and sins and the time that God made you alive. Why is that important? Because there was nothing that we did, as I, as I said before, there was no merit on our part. There was nothing in us that showed God we were worthy. There was nothing in us that, that helped us raise above the level of those around us. Because Paul here says, when you were dead, God made you alive. There is no, you were dead, but you started to show signs of life, so God pulled you out. No. When you were dead, God made you alive. So there's no intermediate state, and the implication is that what we used to do prior to being made alive The way that we walk, the way that we live, the implication is that that deadness, when Paul says you are dead in your transgressions and sins, he described that behavior in verses 1, 2, and 3. And then the idea here that God has now made you alive should lead to a change in your life. You no longer behave the way you once behaved. But now being made alive with Christ, you live in newness of life. So we have this idea that you were made alive with Christ. Again, that's in contrast with verse 1, in which we were dead. Now, what's interesting, and I mentioned this last week, we were always physically alive. I mean, verses 1 to 3, even though verse 1 says you were dead in your transgressions and sins, verses 2 and 3 emphasize the fact that we were still physically alive. Right? Right? Those are describing actions on our part while we were still alive. But we were not alive spiritually, and that's what God did in verse 4. So the implication here, as I mentioned, our new life is brought about. We we, we have newness of life as a result of Jesus Christ dying on the cross. Our our new life was brought about by the cost of Jesus Christ on that cross, the, the price of Jesus Christ on that cross. Our new life is tied with our salvation. And God could not give us new life without also taking away the sins of our old life. Because the sins of our old life deserve judgment. They deserve punishment. And that punishment could only be paid by our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And so that's why as we continue in verse 4, that's why Paul then says, you see the parentheses there, it says, by grace you have been saved. Paul can't help but to break the flow of this. You see, the main subject is God, but the action is threefold. It's that he made us alive, he raised us up, and he seated us with him in the heavenly places. But here, Paul can't help but to break the flow and say, by grace you have been saved. Why is that? Because as he's thinking about how God has made us alive, how he has made us spiritually alive, the cost of Jesus Christ comes to mind. And when the cost of Jesus Christ comes to mind, Paul can't help but to say what he's going to elaborate in verses 8 and 9, that by grace you have been saved, that out of, out of something you did not deserve, God gave you salvation. God gave you life. You, you know, and this is a reminder, too, that even though we know we will have eternal life, that is the promise of repenting of our sins and confessing the Lord Jesus Christ even though we have eternal life we know we will be resurrected physically but the emphasis here is spiritually that's the more important part that you've been made alive spiritually you've been made alive spiritually the physical will follow but being made alive spiritually now means that you understand God you have a heart for God you desire to seek him you desire to serve him And let me read from you Romans chapter 5. Just write this down. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Paul writes this in the book of Romans. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So Paul will elaborate more upon this grace in verses 8 and 9 of Ephesians chapter 2. And then when we think also about... Grace and mercy, we've talked about that. The difference is grace is really getting something good. It's unmerited favor. It's something, it's a gift from God that you did nothing to deserve. And mercy is this idea that you were in a helpless state in God. Out of his love rescued you from that. But as we continue on in verse 6, we see this second action. The first action was that God made us alive together with Christ. The second action is that he raised us up with him. And really, what we're getting into here, we're getting into the details of how God the Father made us alive. What it means that he made us alive. And starting in verse 6, he raised us up with him. Now, there is a contrast between the life of Jesus Christ and what happened when he was crucified and resurrected versus what happened with us. You see, we were dead spiritually, but Jesus was dead physically. Jesus came alive physically. We came alive spiritually. Jesus had always been alive spiritually. We had previously always been dead spiritually. Being raised up with Jesus Christ, his physical resurrection was our spiritual awakening. We were made alive. We were raised up with him. That's what that means. In fact, Romans chapter 6, verse 4, you can just write this down. Romans chapter 6, verse 4, Paul says this. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Of course, there's going to be a future time in which, like I said, we will be resurrected from the dead. We, our temporal lives, will end. But there is a promise that when Jesus returns, after Jesus returns, there will be a resurrection. We will be raised up from the dead and we will live for all of eternity. But most significantly here, this is talking about something that has already been accomplished. It's not talking about your future physical resurrection. It's talking about the fact that spiritually you were raised up with Christ. You are raised up and that you see spiritually, that you have spiritual life. And then not only that, but continuing in verse 6, verse 6, he not only raised us up with him, but he also seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, what's interesting about this verse, verse 6 talks about raising us up and seating us with him in the heavenly places. And if you remember the end of chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, That should remind you that Paul there also mentioned being raised and being seated, except it wasn't applied to us. Take a look at Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 19. And just as a reminder, Paul here is praying for these things for the believer, that they would know these things. And verse 19, Paul is saying that he wants you to know What is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him up from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. Now, what's significant about that prayer is, first of all, that was the prayer that directly preceded these 10 verses that we're now studying. And Paul here was emphasizing the power of God. Once again, in verse 19, he was saying the surpassing greatness of his power. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. And, it's, and his power in verse 19 is towards us who believe. So that power of God, that power of God, which is ongoing, the strength of his might is made available towards us who believe. And then verse 20 goes on to demonstrate that power, that this was the power that raised up Christ and seated him at the right hand. So when we get to chapter 2 and we see here that God raised us up with him. In chapter 2, verse 6, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's a reminder to us that the undercurrent of this entire passage, what Paul has in mind, finishing that prayer, is the power of God. And the power of God is available to you who believe. And one of the ways that it was demonstrated was by raising you up with Christ spiritually raising you up and seating you with Christ. Now, when it said that Jesus Christ was seated at the right hand, that's a position of power. Jesus Christ is ruling over all of creation, over all the heavens and the universe. That doesn't apply to us. In chapter 1 in verse 21, that's that's when Paul actually gets into how Jesus is reigning over all of creation. But for us, we are seated with him, but we're not described as reigning like Christ. But we are in union with Christ. You know, so many times in this letter, we see phrases like in him, in Christ, together with Christ. And this is idea that what happened to Christ happens to us in terms of being resurrected, in terms of being raised, in terms of being seated in the heavenly places. There is a a sense in which positionally we are with Christ already in heaven. We as the church, we serve as what part of Jesus Christ? The body. We are the body he is the head. And in many ways, we know today that we, we, when we do the will of Jesus Christ here on earth, we are ambassadors of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are ambassadors of his authority. We are ambassadors of his message that we are to bring out to the rest of the nations. So we see here the ongoing power that's available to us that's already been demonstrated that tremendous power that raised up Jesus Christ is the same power that raised us up and seated us with him in the heavenly places. But that moves us now to the third subpoint. We went from the cause to the actions, and now we go from the actions to the purpose. The purpose. Starting in verse 7, it reads this. So that, and once again, you see those words so that, it almost always communicates purpose so that in the ages to come now let me stop right there when he says in the ages to come this sounds a little bit similar to chapter 1 verse 21 look at chapter 1 verse 21 this is when Paul describes how Jesus Christ has been seated at the right hand and verse 21 says far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but the one to come The language is similar, but here it's a little bit different because in verse 21 of chapter one, Paul talks about this age and the age to come. But here in chapter two, verse seven, Paul talks about ages, plural, ages to come. Now, there are some commentators that would interpret this the same way. This is talking about the end times when Jesus Christ returns. That he is going to return and that we will have the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness shown towards us in Christ Jesus. And then there are some that says, no, this is not talking about the end times. This is talking about the period of times between now and the time that Jesus returns. So those are the two main positions. But I would submit to you that I believe that there is truth in both of them. The ages to come can be absolutely comprehensive to talk about the ages that we live in, the ages that are coming forth in the the next generations and the following generations until the time that Jesus Christ returns and even the period after Jesus returns. So what do we mean by this? That in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace towards us. Well, once again, we see grace mentioned right there in verse 7. The surpassing riches of his grace. And surpassing, it means it it exceeds all known standards of excellence. I mean, it's beyond um, any standard that we can understand. It's the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. But it says with regards to that, that he might show. He might show the surpassing riches of his grace. Well, you remember when you think back to the start of Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 3, when Paul said that that God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, right? Chapter 1, verse 3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That is past tense, this idea that you have been blessed with spiritual blessings already, even though you have more coming in the future. And here, what we're seeing is that there is blessings for us, but there's also blessings for future believers as well, right? Future generations, your children, our children, their children. Until the time that Jesus Christ returns, we know that the gospel will continue to sound forth. We know that from the day of Pentecost, when the church first started, which was over 2,000 years ago, actually just under 2,000 years ago, Just under 2,000 years ago, from that time until now, the gospel has continued to sound forth. And the gospel has continued to provide salvation to different people in different countries at different times. And this is God's kindness as it is displayed in an ongoing way in rescuing people from that depravity that we saw in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, that repeatedly, from age to age, God is showing his, his, the riches of his grace and kindness by continuing to rescue people from that depravity. He's continuing to bring them salvation. In fact, there was um, this statement here from one commentator, and I thought this was quite interesting. He was talking about the Greek world at that time, and he said one common practice throughout the ancient pagan world was to dedicate statues and trophies won in battles to God. So as they go through wars, as they win these battles, they win these wars, they would dedicate these statues and trophies to their false gods, and you would find these statues and trophies in their temples. So you go to these temples of false gods, and you'll see kind of a, a panoply of statues and trophies meant to symbolize those victories and how those have been offered up to their God. But in this period, it says this period flows out of what was said before and anticipates what will be shortly be said. The church is God's redeemed prized possession. The church is God's redeemed prize possession, and we've been rescued from the prince of the power of the air. We've been rescued from the power of Satan. We've been rescued from the power of this world, even from the power of our own flesh. And Paul says that the church will be trophies of battle on display in the ages to come. So in other words, with regards to God's grace and kindness and love, we as believers, when we are awakened spiritually, and the works that we go out and do for our Lord Jesus Christ ends up serving as living trophies of God's grace in our life. It's living trophies that's on display. And it reminds us of the book of Job when, when Satan came before God, and, and God asked him, where have you been? He said, I've been roaming to and fro through the earth. And what did God tell him? Have you considered my servant Job? God made an example of Job, not because he was sinning against God, but because he was the most righteous man in the world. And now he will raise up people who know God today amongst us from the time of the day of the of Pentecost all the way till now, all the way into the future when Jesus Christ comes. God's kindness will continue to be poured forth. His love will continue to be poured forth. The riches of his grace will continue to be put on display. And at the end of this verse, we're reminded that all this is in Christ Jesus. Now, this may appear redundant because Paul had just gotten through saying that we were made alive together with Christ. We were raised up with Christ. We were seated with him in the heavenly places. And he adds this at the end, in Christ Jesus. It appears redundant. So why does Paul do this? Well, Paul does this because he wants to emphasize in no uncertain terms that you are in union with our Lord Jesus Christ. We, as the body, are connected to our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, oftentimes I meet believers who try to live a life independent of the church. I don't need church. I'm going to just go out and do my own thing. That is a theological contradiction. The church is the body of Christ. Our lives are meant to be connected to Jesus Christ through the church. We are to be serving God as a church. We are to be serving one another. And of course, as you go out into your lives, whether you're at the workplace, whether you're at the supermarket, whether the cable guy comes over to your home to fix your cable issues, whatever the situation might be, of course, you're going to have those opportunities to be able to evangelize, to be able to share the good news. But we, as believers, are part of a body. We're not meant to be independent of that body. You know, that's why we have so many ministries. That's why we have so many gatherings together that we're trying to pull together. We want more of you to be involved in each other's lives. We want more of you to be operating together as a unit rather than just independent entities throughout the week. We want the church to function more than just on Sundays, but throughout the week as we encourage one another, as we spend time with one another, as we pray for one another, you know, as we study with one another. This is the blessing of our Lord Jesus Christ upon us. And Paul here is reminding us over and over again that we are in union with Christ. And that comes with responsibilities. That comes with responsibilities that should not be legalistic. But when we remember God's grace and his mercy and his love poured out upon us, it should stir up our hearts to want to serve him. It should stir up our hearts to want to glorify him. And you know what? I hear a lot of people criticize church saying, well, you know what? Church is just full of hypocrites. Well, welcome to the club, right? But really, we shouldn't be hypocrites, but we know that we fail. We fail. We have our shortcomings. Even our fellow believers in Christ, we're not always that easy to get along with. But as we see the grace and mercy of God poured upon our lives, we want to be able to show that grace and mercy upon our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, we want to be able to love them and to be able to help them and to do whatever is necessary in order to make them whole, to help them grow in Christ Jesus. So as we consider this passage, we consider the the, the fullness of this passage. You know, the, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the love of God, the kindness of God. I would appeal to anyone here this morning, if you're here this morning and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ... There is no love greater than the love that God can pour out upon your life. There is no mercy. There is no loving kindness richer than what you can experience from God and our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no greater love. There is no greater kindness that anyone can show to you than what comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. And folks, if if you are here this morning and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ... If you do not know him, if you have not given up your life to Jesus Christ, if you have not repented of your sins, now is the time. Because our life here is coming to an end. And while you realize it or not, you have been spiritually dead all this time. But the Lord, in his kindness, in his goodness, he is able to rescue anyone from sin. If you feel the call of the Lord... Repent of your sins. And to repent, that means to turn away from them. That means that you will no longer walk the way you once walked, just like the people here described from chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, that you are no longer dead in your trespasses and sins. You are no longer following after the world, after Satan. You are no longer following the lust of your flesh. But now, now knowing that God has died on the cross in order to pay for the sins of those who would believe, that you now repent of those sins. You turn to the Lord and you follow him. I mentioned in my last message the exile of Israel. When you go through the Old Testament, one of the saddest events in all the Old Testament is really the exile of Israel. That Israel was kicked out of the Promised Land. After hundreds and hundreds of years with the Lord, they refused to repent. They continued to disobey. They continued to get worse and worse. Last week, I read from the book of Ezekiel and the Valley of Dry Bones. You may remember that when Ezekiel saw this vision of dry bones. Well, Ezekiel was the prophet in Babylon. The prophet in Judah, who was still in Judah, was Jeremiah. They were contemporaries of one one another. Jeremiah was in Judah. Ezekiel was in Babylon. And Jeremiah, one of the saddest moments, one of the most excruciating portions of Scripture to read through is the book of Lamentations. That was written by Jeremiah as he is watching the temple of God being destroyed. He sees the temple of God on fire and it's being absolutely razed to the ground. And if you read that, you will recognize the very clear signs of depression in Jeremiah. He is in mourning. He is absolutely depressed. He he, he even says, I've lost all hope. He he could probably barely see through his his, his tear-soaked eyes. And then in Lamentation chapter 3, in fact, if you can turn there, go ahead and turn there. Lamentations, um, you may have to look at the table of contents. It's right after the book of Jeremiah. But if you can't get there quickly enough, just listen. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 19 to 23. Jeremiah says this. He prays to God and says, Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness verse 20 then he says surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me this i recall to my mind therefore i have hope the lord's loving kindness indeed never cease for his compassions never fail they are new every morning great is your faithfulness does that remind you of a certain song I mean, sing it with me. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning new mercies I see. All I have needed thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faith. Lord, unto me. Give praise to the Lord now and always for who he is and what he has done out of his loving kindness towards you. Let's pray.